Hello. We were sitting out there hearing their, um, the encouragement for you to act as normally as possible <laughs> should you run into a neighbor. It was pretty funny. I'm uh, Sharon Salzberg. This is, on my left is Susan O'Brien, um, and then Kamala Masters, who came here from Maui, which I always consider particularly noble. And uh, we're going to be leading this retreat together, assisted by Damaruan, who's sitting down there, um, who's a teacher trainee from Sri Lanka. And I'm uh, speaking for all of us, very happy for this opportunity. It's always nice for me to be here um, teaching. And uh, it's always nice for me to be teaching a metta retreat, a loving-kindness retreat. So I know tonight, or I imagine tonight, many of you are pretty tired. So I want to just speak about being here and the, the nature of retreat a little bit. Uh, something about the practice, and we'll be able to begin tomorrow. I find retreat obviously an unusual thing to do in this culture and an incredible opportunity to go within, to learn to trust our own experience rather than being in a position of having to justify ourselves to somebody else or explain ourselves or or try to convey a particular impression of who we are. It's like for once in our lives we can relax and just be ourselves, not in reference to someone else's judgment or assessment. It's an amazing thing to get a little bit quiet, to see really what we might care about and also see what we already understand. Some years ago, when I was, um, I went to Israel to teach. It was a, a peaceful time there. And around the time of the retreat, I had some extra time when I was just staying in someone's house in Jerusalem. One day we went out to the marketplace, which was this site that was just teeming with life, with color and sound and goods for sale piled up everywhere. And we're just walking through the narrow alleyways of the marketplace when a merchant spotted me and he called out to me, oh, I have what you need. And I stopped and it was like this thrill went through my entire body and I thought, oh, wow, he has what I need. And then I thought, wait a minute, first of all, I don't need anything And second of all, how would he know he has what I need? But I think in our world, that voice is calling out to us all of the time. I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need. And we run. We run from one to the other. We get quite dizzy, and we get quite exhausted. We also internalize that voice so that we begin to feel, I do not have enough, I am not enough. I need to acquire, I need to hold on, I need to get, I need to possess something. An object, an experience, a person, all of which become objects in that moment that will make me feel better. The challenge of meditation and the delight of a retreat is the direct confrontation 
with that kind of belief system about who we are, what we're capable of, what we need in order to be happy. I think meditation practice, it's not so hard to understand. Most instruction, whether it's an awareness practice or loving-kindness practice, is pretty simple in terms of intellectually understanding it. But it's not always so easy. I've heard, actually, that whenever the Buddha spoke, he spoke so simply that even a seven-year-old could understand him. And perhaps, as a consequence of that, it's also said he had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. Sometimes what I think we need is to be able to recapture that seven-year-old inside, that being which is open and interested and wanting to learn and isn't so kind of rigidified with all of those ideas like, well, I shouldn't have any of that and I should have more of that. And if I had it for 15 minutes yesterday, certainly I deserve it for 20 today. And, you know, to be able to be that open and curious, full of wonder, trying to understand. The instructions are quite simple, but it's not that easy to be that simple. Hence, we create an environment which will support that. The days of a retreat have their own rhythm. To enhance the possibility of having a continuity of awareness, a continuity of our practice. But the guidelines, say the schedule, for example is not meant to imprison you at all, but to remind us all of a sense of possibility that we can be putting our hearts forth quite sincerely in this this practice and in trying to understand, trying to um, transform. But I would say, you know, right up front, if you feel like you need to get out. I think it's wonderful in a retreat, especially one devoted to loving kindness, to be outside as much as you can, if you can bear the black flies, which I hear are here, as long as you behave normally, you know, in front of the neighbors. So if you need to skip a sitting and go out and walk, it's okay. But even there, there can be a continuity of practice. You can be touching in again with all of the skills that you will be developing here. The, the, whole, the whole nature of it, of the retreat experience, is meant to support that kind of simplicity and devotion where you're not responsible for anything other than being as wholehearted as you can. It's wonderful. What you will experience on retreat is probably a wide variety of different things. I often think of meditation practice as being like going into an old attic room and turning on a light. When we do that, we turn on the light. It doesn't matter if the room has been dark for a day or a week or 10,000 years. We turn on the light, which is like the light of awareness, and what we see is everything. We see everything that a human being can want to know and feel and fear, And that's appropriate, because what is so significant 
in both practices of awareness and loving-kindness is not so much what is happening, but how we are relating to what is happening. That's where the transformation happens. So there's no experience you can have of like sleepiness or restlessness as two common examples that mean you know things have gone really awry. You've taken a terrible turn somewhere. Everything is a part of the practice. There's no way to fail at this. There's no way to do it wrong. Our deepest habits defy that understanding, the habits of continually judging what's going on and feeling that we have to acquire and get and have and possess. And so that's the confrontation. That's why it's simple, but it's not always that easy. I find that the beginning of a retreat experience, more than any other time, tends to be the most difficult part of all. Because unless you lead a very unusual life, this is a big change. There's just the sheer adjustment to the lack of sensory input. I sometimes think when I'm on retreat and I'm beginning a retreat, and it doesn't matter how much experience you've had, if you've never meditated before or you've been practicing for 30 years, it's just the sheer adjustment that is so tumultuous. So when I sit in the beginning of a retreat, I sometimes think it's like there are these two voices inside my mind. One voice says, well, there's nothing happening here. It must be time to go to sleep. And it doesn't matter if I've just slept for 15 hours. You know, I get up, I sit, gone. And the other voice says, well, there's nothing happening here. Let's make something happen. And it's huge outpouring of thinking and planning and creating and the next book, you know, and the whole thing. It's just like leading to incredible agitation. That's the normal experience internally of the beginning part of a retreat. So if you find yourself having huge waves of sleepiness and restlessness, that's okay. What's really important is trying to catch the thought, which then says, oh no, six more days, exactly like this. It's never going to change. Or, this is who I really am, the sluggard. You know, everything else that comes and goes doesn't count. This sleepy mess is me. Because that, again, that's where the transformation is. Can we learn to be with all of these experiences, the joyous ones, the wonderful ones, and the difficult ones, with some openness, with some care, with some compassion. You go into that attic room, and you might see beautiful, beautiful treasures. So wonderful, you can hardly believe that such a thing exists in your very own attic. And you might see these dusty, neglected corners and think, ooh, I better clean that up. And you might see these very disconcerting objects. And you might think, oh, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing here? You'll see everything, and that's okay. We're going to begin the retreat with an emphasis on some of the tools of awareness practice and then move into the unfolding of, of metta, or loving-kindness practice. Those of you who came in the front door, of course, noticed the metta on the front of the building. 
we moved in here um, in February of 1976. The place at that time was owned by the Catholic Church. The Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament was the order. And uh, when we bought it, we moved in in February. We got some poor person to get up on a really tall ladder in a very cold wind. And it said Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament up above the doorway. And we asked him to rearrange the letters so that it would say something about us. And so he came up with Meta. And then it being uh, a new place, those of you who've begun projects will understand this very well, we then had to argue about that for a very long time. We had to discuss everything. And that discussion was, well, you know, it's not an English word. We're, we're not in Asia anymore. We are here. Um, you know, maybe we shouldn't have a foreign word up there, but... I've always liked it, and that was my point of view, which prevailed, which does not always. Um, and I like it because when people call for directions, like the UPS delivery person calls, we say, it's a large brick building with white pillars, and it has this word up there, meta. And then they say, what does that mean? And we get to say, that means love, or that means loving kindness. The literal translation of that word from the Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, is friendship. And so the practice of metta is developing the art of friendship first toward ourselves, and that means all parts of ourselves. Not only those parts of ourselves we're very proud of and we'd like to present to the world, but also those parts of ourselves that are a little bit hidden from us, we're a little bit cut off from. And those parts of ourselves we're quite uneasy about or we don't like still we can have a spirit of friendship. And then that same sense of friendship ultimately toward all of life, to know deeply our connection, our connectedness to all of life, the boundlessness of life, and to be responsive to that very profound understanding of how connected we all are. That spirit underlies every practice that we do, whether it's sitting and watching the breath, practicing being aware of whatever our experience is, or the, the traditional literal practice of loving kindness, all of which we'll do here. It's all about inclusion, including more and more of our experiences in a field of awareness and loving kindness, and more and more beings in that same field until we reach that sense of, of boundlessness. So the theme of each practice is really inclusion, to open, to connect, more and more and more. All of this is based on the belief in Buddhist teaching that we're capable of it, that this isn't a fanciful idea, that liberation from our suffering, really understanding ourselves, understanding the nature of our lives, being connected, being compassionate, being caring toward ourselves and toward all beings. That's not just for the special people, you know, the few who lived long ago or live under very rarefied circumstances in life as a capacity, as a potential that exists for everybody. It's innate to our being, having been born a human being. 
So when we undertake meditation practice, it's not the sense that we're starting from nowhere or nothing, and we somehow have to labor to get something we don't already have. We need to contrive or uh, manufacture or fabricate something. But rather, it's more about rediscovering, or maybe discovering for the first time, that capacity to care, to connect, to understand, to be aware, and to bring it to life, to let it flower in a whole variety of different circumstances. As a capacity, as a potential, the Buddha said that it could never be destroyed, no matter what we go through in our lives. We have a capacity to love, for example, according to the teachings, no matter how unloved we may have ever felt or unlovable or incapable, it's there. We have a capacity to understand our experience, to be free, even in the face of very difficult, damaging circumstances. As a capacity, it's always there. It may be covered over. It may be something we're out of touch with. It may be obscured, but it's never, ever destroyed. So we practice with with some of that confidence and some of that delight as well. That can carry us through many difficulties, which also arise. Practice really demands a lot of patience. And many of you have heard me talk about how when we first moved in here in 1976, we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. And in the beginning, that was really my favorite. Somebody just sent me a book called Instant Meditation, actually. I was sitting at my kitchen table when I got home today. You know, that was really my favorite um, for a long time because... I just thought it was such a a classic example of our cultural dictum that if something doesn't happen instantly, it's not worth pursuing. And the other letter, which is my current favorite, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. (laughs) And that I really, really love a lot. Because I think it is so true There have been so many times in my spiritual life, you know, my meditative life, where I've practiced and I've practiced and it felt like nothing was happening, just nothing was happening. Only for me later on to look back and say, well, what do you know? That period, that dreary period where I thought nothing was happening actually was the foundation for this other thing to come through. It might not have happened that way if I hadn't gone through that initial time Or that really hurt. That was really painful. But that opened me in some way that allowed this next thing to happen. Just as there are so many times in life, you know, where we try to help somebody or or change a situation or make a contribution in some way, and it feels like it's going nowhere. And sometimes later, when we're lucky, we can look back and say, you know, that was really important, I did that. That planted a seed without which this other thing might never have happened, or it rippled out in a way. It seemed like it was nothing at the time, it was going nowhere, but it actually was a seed. 
that made a difference later on. So the Hindsight Meditation Society, I think, is something we should all adopt. And I urge you to adopt that spirit while you're here. One of the most kind of disagreeable tendencies one can have in meditation is to be constantly checking and assessing and evaluating and judging what's happening. Rather than having a sense of adventure, I really see it as an adventure. You know, for all that we think of an adventure as external, climbing a mountain or, or something like that, there's an inner world. It's, it's a huge adventure. And it's like taking a journey through all kinds of different terrain. So the best feeling is, right, I got on the train. It's a little swampy right now, but you don't know what's going to happen next. And you'll see many, many, many changing experiences. It's okay. That way, you know, you can have fun, actually, and have, have some lightheartedness and some confidence, no matter what is going on. And everything really is okay. Traditionally, when we begin a retreat, we begin by taking what are called the three refuges and the five precepts, which are symbolic of the community that we create together here. I'll start by talking about the five precepts. These are guidelines of of moral behavior, ethical behavior, that create for ourselves an enhanced commitment to compassion, to sensitivity, to paying attention, and create for others a very real kind of safety. The first of the precepts is making a commitment not to kill any living being. That includes black flies, uh, things we're not traditionally fond of, but rather using this time as a time of developing a sense of reverence for all of life, not to steal, not to take that which has not been offered. And here, you know, it's a perfect example of what we can make together here. Many years ago, not too long after we opened the center, several of our friends came to us and said, you know, my parents are very, very upset about this strange new hobby that I'm doing, meditation. And wouldn't it be great if you had a retreat just for these parents and, you know, just gather these hostile, angry, frightened people together and tell them that what their kids are doing is really okay. So we said, okay. And we had a few what we call parents' courses, which were really a riot. And um, we knew that unlike all of you who we know can handle silent meals as awkward as it might seem at first, we knew that they could never, ever do that. And so we, we had them speak during meals, and we ate with them so we could talk to them. And the very first breakfast, we sat down. I was with Joseph Goldstein um, at the same table. We sat down, and this woman uh, whose daughter was on staff leaned over and said to him, you've kidnapped my daughter and you've brainwashed her and it's not going to happen to me. So that was the general tone of these retreats, um, at least in the beginning. And what I noticed was that these people would come into the meditation hall with all their belongings. They used to have these piles of things, you know, and, 
And they're always locking their door behind them to lock their valuables, you know, if they're going to eat or something like that. And we didn't have any keys. You know, we couldn't get them back in. So then someone would have to run around looking for a master key. And I just thought, look how we live ordinarily, how frightened we are and how guarded we are. And sometimes, you know, it might be necessary in a way. And what an amazing thing that we can create a community here where that is not a relevant consideration. Where you know that you're safe, your property is safe, you're being respected, your integrity is being respected. It's the nature of, of all of these precepts. We undertake a precept to refrain from sexual activity while we're here to use all of our energy um, in that way of, of continuity, of awareness, and in some way to actually use the time to explore the nature of desire rather than being compelled by it. We undertake a precept to refrain from false speech or lying, which is expanded while we're here to undertaking what we call noble silence. I know there are a lot of very funny phrases um, that take a lot of getting used to, like yogis, for example, which is all of you. Uh, it's the way we were referred to in India as practitioners. Um, and it's been one of my goals in life to get us to stop using the word yogi because it's so strange. But that one did not prevail. You know, 27 years later, it's still there. Um, <clears throat> to noble silence means taking great care with your speech. You're always able to talk to one of the teachers, uh, both in formal discussion groups or questions and answers or um, you know, other forums, but to really refrain from speaking to one another. And that includes writing long notes, um, having long soulful gazes in someone else's eyes. Because again, it's a time for yourself. We spend so much of our lives in kind of a social pretense in a way, or projection, to be able to drop all of that. And sometimes as people anticipate a retreat, the silence is the most scary thing. People say, you know, I don't think I can be silent for seven days, or everyone in my office took a bet I couldn't be silent for seven days, or all kinds of things like that. But um, almost always at the end, it's the single factor that people point to as having been the most beautiful. Because really, for once, we can just be ourselves. It's quite extraordinary, a gift. And then we undertake a precept to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause heedlessness that is um, drugs or alcohol. It doesn't mean you should stop taking your prescription medication, um, but it's really recreational drugs and alcohol. In addition to that, we also ask you, as much as possible while you're here, to not read. That doesn't mean it's a terrible thing if you read a little bit, but like many activities, there's, there are some things that we can do habitually to get away from ourselves and our own experience rather than realize there are ways of being with ourselves that can be very different. 
And also in the same spirit not to write. It doesn't mean you can't take notes or, or something like that. But um, I know how much easier it is sometimes to stop a process in order to try to capture it in words rather than just let it keep moving, moving through me and see where it, it might take me next. And then the three refuges. Traditionally, we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Buddha is the Buddha, the historical figure, the teacher, leader, and exemplar is maybe the, the best model. I know the first time I ever saw a Buddha statue in India, you know, the first time I ever saw a Buddha statue as a, um, a religious object, not like in a Chinese restaurant in Manhattan, um, I came to, right away, I had this impression of the Buddha as being a completely integrated being. That was what he symbolized for me. I, like many people, had a life, a mind that was very fragmented, so that, you know how we can be one person when we're all alone? Like maybe we're filled with loving kindness when we're all alone, but we're terrified of being with other people. Or everything is fantastic when we're other people, but we're terrified of being alone, or we're one whole person at work and a completely different person with our families. And I took a look at that Buddha statue and I thought, here is a being who was who he was, where the threads of wisdom and compassion, freedom of mind, were steady in his life, whether he was alone, in practice, in solitude, or he was wandering through India teaching, he was who he was. The Buddha in this tradition is always referred to as having been a human being who asked some very human questions about the nature of life. And what does it mean to be born in this body, to be a helpless, vulnerable infant, subject to all of that conditioning that comes, then to grow up, to grow old, to get sick, to die, whether we like that or not. And is there a quality of happiness that doesn't have to be shaken or broken or shattered in the face of that kind of change? What does it mean to have a human mind so that we might wake up in the morning and we're filled with love and then we're angry and then we're afraid and then we're sad and then we're joyful? Just this cascade of emotions. And again, is there a quality of happiness that is enduring throughout all of that? that we can touch, that's real. And it's said that the answers to those questions or the resolution to those questions, he found through the power of his own effort, and so can we, because we too have that same capacity of not just living mechanically and not being driven by habit, but going deeper and discovering So when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's very much in that spirit. I think of it sometimes as a a kind of transparency. It's like we look at the Buddha, but what we see is something about ourselves. And we look at ourselves in that that level, that particular depth, and it's not just us, you know, that one person who's so special. We see something about all of life. We see something about all beings. The next refuge is the Dharma, or the Dhamma in Pali, Dharma in Sanskrit, which is sometimes translated as the Buddha's teaching, 
It's the path, it's the way, it's that which supports us, that which sustains us. We take refuge in the truth. The truth of things in this moment, without guile, without an agenda, without distortion. And we take refuge in an ultimate truth. That we can find it, that it will sustain us. And the third refuge is that of the Sangha, the community Um, It also has several meanings. It's the community of monks and nuns who have preserved the teachings from the time of the Buddha. It's a community of those beings who have practiced the teachings and have come to a state of liberation to one degree or another. I often think of that meaning of sangha and taking refuge in it as like joining a stream where from the beginning of time, men and women and children have had the courage to seek another way, to not just do what was convenient or conventional, to try to really live a different kind of life. And by taking refuge, we are aligning ourselves with that sense of possibility, that this can be done. People can do this. And then the the more contemporary meaning of the word sangha is the community of people who walk the path together. It's this community as we support and sustain one another. In a lot of pursuits, there is a great strength to be had from from people coming together. And we can often do in solidarity more easily what is more difficult to do completely alone. And so we have created this community in that spirit of taking refuge. So Kamala is going to, to do that formally, the taking of the refuge and the precepts, to lead that. And then we're going to have a short sitting, um, short meditation, where we'll begin the awareness practice, which we'll go into more tomorrow as a, a conduit to doing the loving-kindness practice. So thank you. So I suppose you have your papers, uh, and you can follow along if you like, taking out your papers saying refuges and precepts. What I'll do is a call and response, and uh, I'll go fairly short on the uh, phrases so that you'll have an easy time to respond Explaining the first line and the last line also, normally, uh, traditionally, we give a homage to the root teacher, which is the, the Buddha, so this is the, the good thing to do, so we'll do that three times before we do the refuges and the precepts. And at the very end, we share uh, the... We make the... Uh, aim that our conduct conduces to the attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. I always get the, in Hawaii we call it chicken skin when I say that. Uh, May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. So I find it especially important to remember that last line and really take it in. 
So beginning now with the refuges and precepts, bringing your hands together. If you feel that that symbolizes bringing your heart, your mind, and your body together. Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Budang Saranangachami Budang Saranangachami Damam Saranangachami Damam Saranangachami Sangang Saranangachami Sangang Saranangachami Dutiampi Dutiampi Budang Saranangachami Budang Saranangachami Dutiampi Damam Saranangachami Dutiampi Damam Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami Tatiampi Budang Saranangachami Tatiampi Budang Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami Panati Pata Panati Pata Veramani Veramani Sikapadang Sikapadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Adinadana Adinadana Veramani Veramani Sikapadang Sikapadang Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Abrahmacharya Veramani Sikapadang Sikapadang Samadhyami Su Musawada Musawada Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Sura Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadang Sikapadang Samadhyami Idang me silang Idang me silang 
Magapalanyanasa, Magapalanyanasa, Pachayo, Pachayo, Hotu. So let's sit together for a few minutes. If you can sit comfortably with your back erect. Sometimes people imagine, say there's a brick wall behind your back and starting from your lowest vertebrae, one by one, you raise your back up against the wall. So you're not stiff or strained. But if you can sit that way, sit more erect, your breath will be more natural and you'll be more wakeful, which is a very big help. And close your eyes unless you're accustomed to sitting with your eyes open. And if you get really sleepy, it's perfectly fine to open your eyes and continue your practice in that way. You can start by listening to sound, the sound of my voice, other external sounds, which will help bring you to a felt sense of what it's like to have a relaxed and open awareness. Even though there's some sounds we like and some we don't like, you don't have to chase after them to hold on to them or push them away. Settle deep into your body, relax. Let the sound come, let it go. You can bring that same relaxed and open awareness to the feeling of your body sitting. Whatever sensations you may discover. And then to the breath. See if there's a place where you feel the breath most distinctly. The in and out movement of air at the nostrils, or the rising, falling movement at the chest or the abdomen. Let your mind rest there. See if you can feel just one breath, without regard to what's already gone by, and without leaning forward even for the very next one. You can make a quiet mental notation of in and out, arising, falling, to support the awareness of the breath. Whenever you find your attention has wandered, you've gone to the past, you've gone to the future, speculation, judgment, whatever, it's okay that really is the most crucial moment in the practice. See if in that moment when you realize that your attention has wandered, 
that you've been distracted. Instead of judging yourself or being harsh, see if you can gently let go. Shepherd your attention back. Come back to feeling just this one breath. If you have to let go and begin again thousands of times, it's really fine.
That's an amazing realization, actually, that your mind can go very far away and you can always begin again. Nothing is ruined, nothing is lost. Gather your attention back. Thank you. Tomorrow morning, I think, is a special treat. You don't have to get up quite as early. Something like that. Did Marilyn explain it? Um, I I believe that there's not a formal sitting before breakfast, but there'll be a wake-up bell, I don't know, 6 or 6.15, something like that. That's later than normal. (laughs) And then breakfast at at 6.45. Um... And then we'll meet here in the hall at 8.30 for, uh, again, um, some discussion and uh, instruction and questions and answers as well as sitting. Um, But this hall is always open. Um, If you're not feeling sleepy right now, you're welcome to sit. If you really want to get up at 5.15 in the morning, (laughs) you're welcome to sit. Um, It's really for you. It's, It's an amazing, wonderful energy here. I'm always so happy when I come back from far away um, to rejoin the uh, really what we have all helped to create here. So, thank you. Yes. Do Do you know who's uh, which one of you is ringing the bell in the morning, the early morning bell? All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.